Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, ecological and political crises that we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is none other than Kate Rayworth. Kate is an economist, she's an author, and a senior research associate at Oxford University. And most importantly, she is the creator of Donut Economics. Donut Economics reimagines the world economy and local economies in a way that is in keeping with the planetary boundaries, uh, so ecological health, but also that puts social health front and centre, i.e. that people have access to education, housing, healthcare, well-being, social equity. I'm trying to think about how I can describe this visual image. I would highly suggest you go and Google it. It has this amazing diagram that is just so explanatory. But essentially, it is a way of creating a balanced and regenerative and distributive economy that ditches our focus on growth and ditches our focus on the private sector and ditches our focus on profit maximization to create an economy that is about well-being, not just human well-being, but the well-being of the species that we share this planet with and, of course, the planet itself. Kate, like many of the other guests on this podcast, has a vision for where we could be and what we could be, what we could achieve together. That's not to say getting there will be easy. It will be difficult. But the point is keeping our eyes fixed firmly on that vision firmly on a world that prioritizes the health and happiness of people and the healthy longevity of our planet. And if any listener hasn't come across Donut Economics before, I'm so excited to be able to present it to you now. I hope you all enjoy this episode. If you do, please share it far and wide and leave a little review on whatever app you're listening to this episode on. If you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. As ever, a huge thank you to the Planet Critical community who choose to support the show and keep this project going every week. Kate, thank you so much for making time for Planet Critical. It is such a pleasure to have you on the show. A big pleasure to join you. So just a little anecdote to begin. Um, you are actually the reason that I am on this climate journey. I listened to your episode of Freakonomics uh, when you were interviewed uh, by The Economist. I can't remember the name of, his name off the top of my head. And I remember I was on a bus going through Holland and I just had my head in my hands. And it's just like, oh my God, everything starts to make sense. It was the first time I'd encountered a sort of systems thinking perspective. And I came home, Googled you and your work for hours and then started to sort of try and fill in the gaps of other people that were doing this thing. Um, and I think it, from that first step, it was about a year later that I launched this podcast, just through increasing interest and in research and concern about the way that we were going but it was all thanks to that interview with you on Preconomics. Wow <laughs> that's big news to start with. Um, I'm amazed no and honoured. Um, it's amazing isn't it when, when each of us is triggered into thinking differently and hmm. what, what, what unlocks uh, that opening up of worlds and discovering of ideas and I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled if that podcast was part of your journey. Thank you. It absolutely was. It was the, the cornerstone, the, the first development of it. And I would love to know yours. Um, before we get into donut economics and introduce that model, you are an economist. At what point in your training did you start to get a sense that 
the neoclassical economist was just not fit for the 21st century? Well, that's a great question. Uh, So when I went to university to study economics, I had never studied it before. So I turned up surrounded by lots of students who had. And so my first uh, jump into it was scrambling to catch up. Right, I wasn't questioning. Mm. I was trying to learn. I was trying to catch up, trying to understand. It took me a long time to start asking the questions. And it was actually my my professor, uh, Professor Francis Stewart, when I studied development economics. It's called development economics as if I don't know what the rest of it is then. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, and the first essay she gave me to ask was, what is human development and how should we measure it? And it was mm. the first time that anybody within the field of economics had asked me, Sorry, what is it we're trying to do here? Right. How would we know if we were getting there? And it was just so struck me that this was the first time this question had come up. And that took me down a whole different route of thinking and rejecting the metrics and the analysis that I'd inherited. But I have to say that I, I'm a real visual thinker. I love pictures. I love simple mm-hmm. ones. And I was shown this diagram by a futurist called Hazel Henderson, who sadly died earlier this year so it's nice to bring her back in the room mm. she drew this picture of a cake a cake on a little cake stand of lots of different layers you know the bottom slice and the middle slice and the tears of a cake and she said this was the layer cake of the industrial economy and on the bottom the bottom slice was called mother nature on which everything sits and then there was mm. the love economy she was from the West Coast of the US, right? Love economy. <laughs> it's the unpaid care economy, the cooking, washing, sweeping, mm. raising the kids, caring for each other. No money passing hands, but foundational to life. Then on top of that was the public sector providing health and education and roads. And then there was right on the very top of the icing, just the icing on the top, it was the private sector. Mm. And I just thought this was brilliant, visually showing that what we think of the economy business is dependent upon, sits upon this invisible but essential world. And I was so struck that why is it that the best diagram of the economy that I've ever seen looks like a cake (laughs) and was never in my textbooks and I pinned it on the wall next to my desk for ages. Just It just was making me think this shows something that's left invisible in everything I was taught. And it helped me just recognize the importance of pictures. Because what Mm. we put on the page, the lines we draw, they determine what we see and what we don't see. They decide what's central and what's peripheral. And if we leave Mm. it invisible, we won't measure it. We probably won't talk about it. We certainly won't manage it and care for it. So it was her work, actually. And I didn't realize it at the time. I just thought, well, I love that diagram. But I, you know, look, I ended up drawing a donut. I'm sure the donut was inspired by the cake and (laughs) the power of pictures to reframe. So... We can talk about, you know, power invested interest in institutions. I'm really interested in the power of framing the way we think. And it happens sometimes in the very first diagrams we encounter. And the Mm. power, therefore, in the pencil to redraw the world and to change the way our minds encounter the world. Beautiful. The power in the pencil to redraw the world. I think what is so beautiful as well about that example is the inclusivity of um of pictures of 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 drawings um the what we know academia sort of struggling with its own ivory tower um things are written in certain languages we develop these extra languages 
um, that make everything seem sort of so inaccessible. And I am sure is has been sort of part of a deliberate um, bid to keep expertise withheld to a small part of the population. Otherwise, why would we pay experts so much? Um, and so I love that as part of the kind of, you know, donut economics is also sort of about redistribution yep. as, as far as I understand it. And you yep. will, of course, explain it, but also this redistribution of, of knowledge and accessibility and including people in the capacity to redraw the world and reimagine the world, which has been left to just such a small select uh, group of people for so long, which I'm sure is why we're in this mess now. Yeah. And actually when I uh, graduated from university and when I was, I, I, first of all, I didn't ever want to call myself an economist because I had come to mm. see the deficits in what I'd been taught, the lack of conversation about power. The living world mm. was practically absent. In fact, it was only referred to as an externality, which is in yes. itself insane. And I mm. never, ever wanted to hold out my hand and say, hello, I'm an economist. And in fact, years later, when I was writing the book, Donut Economics, and I was a, a mom of two young kids and I would be chatting to other parents at the school gate and they say, what do you do? And if I ever said, well, I'm writing a book about rethinking economics, you know, the first thing people do is they step back. Uh, <laughs> they, they immediately say, oh, I, I wasn't very good at maths at school. And I think, wow, what is it about economics that most people think it's too hard for me? I'm not a mathematician, so I can't mm. get involved in this, but it actually massively determines each of our lives and should yeah. be an utterly accessible conversation. So sticking the word donut in there and calling it donut economics, it's a, it's a, a little flag waving saying, this is fun. This is accessible. This invites your humor <laughs> and your play. This is for everyone. And mm -hmm. I've been really thrilled by the way that so many community organizations and teachers have brought it into community conversation, into the classroom and made it irresistible, playful. And made everybody realize, actually, I can be part of this conversation. And this mm -hmm. makes sense. To me. This version of economics makes sense to me. Now I'm empowered. And actually, I have a lot to say. I can't really ask well, for more than that. I think what's so funny about um, this sort of neoclassical economics is maybe it had to be couched in such opaque and obscure and um, inaccessible language. Because when you do explain it to somebody who is any shred of common sense, they go, well, that's not going to make sense. That's a, that doesn't work. That's how the real world works. <laughs> yeah. So you, there has to be this sense of reimagining it. But I mean, yeah, the, the feelings of it are so evident. Um, and we talk about it a lot on Planet Critical. So could yeah. you walk us through what is donut economics and um, explain to us why it's taken the world by storm? Because it really has. Well, I'm very happy to tell you what donut economics is. So, so economics means, if you take it back to the ancient Greek roots, it means mm. the art of household management. And we could not need anything more than that right mm. now, right? This is a critical thing. And I really like to go back to the roots of the meaning of the word. Let's reclaim this word and its ambition and its intention. So donut economics was my response to being really frustrated by what I was taught. And years after, in fact, it was after the global financial crisis, right? When I heard economists start saying, well, we need to rewrite the economics textbooks to, re to, to reflect financial realities. And I mm -hmm. thought, I'll be damned if we're only going to rewrite economics textbooks to reflect financial realities. We need to reflect the crisis of social inequalities within and between the world, nations. We need to reflect climate and ecological breakdown. We need to rewrite economics for all of this. So what I did was go to read all the economic theories that I had never been taught. And they mm. were amazing. Feminist economics, ecological economics, and complexity economics. 
there were some phenomenal ideas there. And I wanted to ask myself, what happens if we don't leave them as all of the disparate schools of thinking and you have to mm. choose which direction are you going to go in? Bring them together, make them dance on the same page. And that was my mm. goal with donut economics. And, and at the heart of this, is, of course, this word, I keep saying the donut. So the donut, mm -hmm. it's a picture. And you can think of it as a, a, the kind of donut that has a hole in the middle. So it's a ring. And I offer this as a compass for human flourishing in the 21st century. And if you think of humanity's use of Earth's resources radiating out from the center, then the hole in the middle of the donut, that's a place where people are left falling short on the essentials of life. That's where people don't have the resources mm. they need to thrive without decent food and housing, education, healthcare, income, community, political participation, social equity. The world's governments have already agreed to this because these come from the sustainable development goals. So mm. leave no one in the hole. But it's a very big but. As we collectively use Earth's resources to meet our essential needs and wants, we, we cut timber from the forest, we draw my, minerals and metals from the, from the land, convert land to create food, we emit carbon emissions, we draw water from lakes and rivers. As we use Earth's resources, we start putting pressure on the life-supporting systems of our planetary home. And that's the outer crust of the donut. It's like a, an ecological ceiling beyond which we should not go because there we've risked breaking down the delicately balanced living planet that is life on Earth. So we need to live in the ring itself. And in, in essence, I can say, leave no one in the hole, but don't overshoot Earth's limits. So we need mm. to thrive in that ring-shaped space in between the two. And already this is transforming our deep sense of progress and success because neoclassical 20th century economics told us it's growth. In fact, that's what politicians are saying again and again, mm -hmm. growth, growth, mm -hmm. growth. Mm -hmm. And it's this idea of endless increase, no matter how rich a nation already is, it's the solution to its problems lie in yet more growth. Mm. There's something insane about that, that there's no limit to this. So instead of pursuing endless growth, the donut says, no, we need to learn to thrive in balance. It's, it's mm -hmm. this delicate balance between meeting the needs of all, but doing it within the means of the living planet. That is the, the North Star, the target, the goal, the vision of what success looks like. It's utterly different from saying a growing GDP. And therefore mm. it changes everything. And when I first drew the donut 10 years ago, I was just blown away by how how strongly people responded to it. I had no idea, and Oxfam who published it, we had no idea that people would use it immediately in conversation to, to make visible their love for social justice and their love for the living planet and that these things need to be made visible together and discussed together. It doesn't work to say, are you working on social justice or are you working on environmental protection? They have mm. to happen together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I was blown away by people's response to that. And then I thought, okay, if the goal is the donut, then what kind of economic mindset gives us even half a chance of getting there? And that's when I went back and read all the different kinds of economics. What are the very best ideas that we can draw on without being weighed down by what's already in the textbook, what's already on the syllabus, what's normal for politicians to talk about? Let's go for the long view. So I called it seven ways to think like a 21st century economist not worrying about what today's politicians would think and drew up a series of principles. So it's not full of policies. 
it'd be crazy to try and prescribe policies. It's mm. principles about thinking in complex terms rather than um, mechanical simplicity. It's about recognizing we can nurture the best of human nature rather than assuming that we're rational, self-interested and individualistic. It's mm. about moving from a degenerative industrial design to a regenerative one from a divisive economic system to a distributive one. And it calls into question the future of growth. Mm -hmm. There's something I want to ask here because this is, um, this is a conversation that I'm having quite a bit with my community at the moment, which is for those of us who uh, are already on this side together and already working on all of this, um, perhaps from different angles, but with the goal of making the world a better place for everybody or attempting to. How do we use our ideas to, tr to translate into slogans or stories or policies or principles that can attract people that are, for the moment aren't sure? And suppo I suppose the question that I want to ask then um, is how would you apply any of those principles or the principle of donut economics now to the cost of living crisis in the United Kingdom. And we'll, we'll get into the ecology, but right now, I mean, the whole world seems to be in a cost of living crisis um, because of the, the, the war in Ukraine and how that's driven up um, fuel prices or perhaps speculation has. Um, what are the principles that we could say to a British public that would convince them the nonsense that's being spouted by our leaders about growth not only is that ineffective and will not help you and is destroying the planet, but here's just a better option um, that could help your communities thrive, not just today and tomorrow, but in five years and 10 years and 20 years time. So instead of starting in the cost of living crisis, which makes us all mm -hmm. go for a very um, emergency quick fix, which we mm -hmm. have to respond to when, when a crisis occurs, but it, it can stop us from taking the bigger long view if we only start from within a moment of crisis. So I would start mm. with that community that you're talking about. And this is happening actually mm. all over the UK and internationally. People in communities, either led by community groups or local councillors saying, okay, what is our vision for our city or community, whether it's Glasgow or Leeds or Devon or Cornwall um, or Birmingham? People are asking these questions. What does it mm. mean to thrive here? What is our vision of thriving? And how do we, what would it mean for everybody to have the basics of enough? What would it mean to live and respect our local ecology of place, to bring mm. back nature so that our city, and, and we're not exposed to heat waves in the summer, right? So we can't respond only to one crisis at a time. We've got to recognize yeah. the vulnerability to multiple crises. How do we create cities that have greenery and resilience so we're not exposed to heat waves and droughts? How do we reduce our footprint on the whole planet? Because that's the big planetary question, reducing our carbon and material intensity. And how do we find a way to live in a way that respects the rights of people worldwide? So we invite mm. people to create a portrait of their, their own locality through the lenses of the donor, opening up a big community mm. conversation about what it means to thrive here. And the two dynamics that I believe we need to put at the heart of public policymaking are moving from divisive policies that drive opportunity and value into the hands of a few and dis two distributive ones. So investing in what the journalist George Monbiot says, moving from private luxury and public squalor to public luxury and private sufficiency. And I think that's just really beautifully put 
how do we create public luxury in terms of really great public transport, affordable social housing so people aren't suddenly exposed to hiked mortgage prices, but they know mm. that they can afford their rents, that we can create uh, locally owned enterprises that where food is affordable for all. We can create renewable energy that might be a solar cooperative owned by the local community, owned by the schools mm. so that removes us from this uh, vulnerability to the geopolitics of fossil fuel prices. There are solutions for all of these things. One of the reasons why we're in a crisis now is because we've left it so late to mm -hmm. remove ourselves from a dependency on fossil fuels. Uh, and suddenly you find yourself caught in crisis. So redistributing the ownership of the sources of wealth creation. How can we have publicly owned, collectively owned essential services? What some people call a social guarantee of health, education, childcare, and ensure decent incomes and like living wages for all. And to me, this is a real rewriting and remaking of the ownership of enterprise. I think there's a lot of mm. innovation around locally owned, cooperatively owned, mm. fully owned businesses, rather than seeing that we have to depend upon large multinationals to grow, to create jobs, which actually can be very vulnerable jobs for people. So we need to create distributive economies, but we also need to create regenerative economies that become part of a circular or cyclical economy. So we're reusing and recirculating materials, but we're repairing and sharing rather than, for example, everyone thinking, okay, I need to get rid of a fossil fuel car. Do I just buy an electric vehicle instead? Mm. No, that is not going to be a solution. That's still incredibly mm. material intensive. We need to move to excellent public transport, affordable yeah. and to car sharing. So it takes a vision of a national system or a city scale system to put in place the infrastructures that actually enable people to lead really resilient, decent, low-carbon, affordable lives for all. Now, I, I'm speaking to a big, long vision, and, and you know, I can sense myself, that's, that's not an immediate solution to the cost of living crisis that we're in right now. We will never actually make these scales of transformation if we're only ever trying to solve for tomorrow's headline because we get caught up in the immediacy of it. But if we were going to deal with the immediacy of it, a windfall tax on fossil fuel company profits that are extraordinary right now would be a very sensible way of redistributing unanticipated extreme wealth to those who most need support. And the, you know, the numbers of people being forced to go to food banks in this country is extraordinary, given it's one of the mm. richest nations in the world. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't try to solve the politics for tomorrow's headline, but speak to a much longer vision of where we need to transform to, because I do also believe that it's in crises that the most progressive places and policymakers will pivot towards a new vision, right? Mm -hmm. Crisis actually opens up an opportunity to leave behind and stop trying to fix incrementally the old system and actually mm. invest in a new. Mm. I, I think your theory that is being proven right now uh, we are in the week of protests outside Downing Street. Uh, we had all of the campaigns, Enough is Enough and Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil, Insulate Britain, all of these groups come together over the weekend as well uh, to block Westminster Bridge. There is a seemingly sort of coalition and uh, urgency um, that perhaps we haven't seen before. I suppose, though, still, I, I kind of want to stick on this tension between the immediacy and the long-term vision because for many people all around the world um 
who are not privileged uh, in the way to be sort of sitting in a studio with equipment, having having highfalutin conversations, who are thinking instead about where am I going to get fresh water or how am I going to get food or how am I going to keep shelter above my children's heads? What kind of messaging do we use or how do we speak to the genuine immediacy and urgency of their issues? And how do we communicate that the vision that is in the long term is equally for them? Um, because I still, for me, it feels like if there's A, B and C, A being the immediacy and C being the long-term vision, we haven't quite figured out how to make B manifest itself or how to explain that first all you need to do is move to B and then C will arrive with us as well. So the governments of the day promise growth uh, that will somehow trickle down to help solve these mm. crises. Um, and I think for decades it's been proven that that's not how it works. We, we live in a world in which the richest 1% of people own half the world's wealth the mm -hmm. goal of the framing of the donut is to put the immediacy of people's needs right center of the picture. So if I were to right. hold up the donut in front of us, right in the middle of the whole of the donut, it says food, energy, water, housing, social inequality, ensuring equity, income. These are the essentials of people's lives. And these are the issues that are in crisis. It's interesting to me that a uh, only a couple of years ago, maybe before the COVID pandemic, many of the world's high income countries, when they would look at the donut, they would say, well, you know, these things we've sort of got sorted. Like, these aren't, these aren't crises for us, but they are crises in every country in the world today, because we recognize that food and energy uh, and water are deeply intertwined in the way they're provisioned in the world. Mm -hmm. And so these are very real in people's lives. So to, to, to create policies that put front and center, how do we ensure that everybody has enough food to eat, that everybody has affordable, clean energy, that they have decent housing? The reason why it's hard to suddenly solve in a country, especially like the UK, is because for decades, uh, governments have sold off public housing. They have uh, privatized many of the utilities, which could now be actually purposed. And you see other countries actually ensuring decent prices, protecting people from the prices. But when, you, when you're in a country where so much has been privatized and sold to overseas investors, where you've lost control over it, so you've commodified many of the basics of life, which aren't truly commodities, they are the essentials of life, they're human rights, but you've allowed housing to be treated as a commodity, energy to be treated as commodity. Mm. These are essentials for life. And so we find ourselves in this crisis situation. So it is that the further you go down that road, the more uh, radically transformative it appears to be trying to actually solve these by bringing them away from that commodification sphere and actually treating them as if they are public goods that need to be insured as human rights. So it's not easy to mm. bring this language immediately to people. And so we can talk about the immediate needs of uh, protecting people's access to energy, you know, all the things we could have done and should have done already, like mm. insulated 27 million homes in this country, would already have reduced the cost of living crisis. Moved to renewable energy far faster would have reduced our dependency on geopolitics of gas prices. We are late. And so mm. you can't come up suddenly with a solution to a crisis that's arisen because we haven't yet acted. Mm -hmm. I understand that uh, this is sort of an impossible question, but why are we so late? Why is it that those in power seem hell-bent on continuing down a, a path of destruction 
uh, and ignoring warnings from scientists, from people with the data. What, what, what happened and why does it continue today? Well, I don't know. Mm. Um, like anybody, I don't know why. Um, I think we're also caught in the it's moments. Perhaps historians will look back in 100 years and they'll see so much better than we can in mm. it. Why? But it seems to me because to propose change requires so much more work than to propose continuity. If you want to speak for a different vision of the future, you need to propose it. It's like the onus is on you to explain how that could possibly work. How will everything work? How will the last detail of this work? And how will that work? You know, the onus is on you to explain how transformation is going to work. When those who are running the economy, according to the status quo, are so rarely asked, how on earth are you going to not destroy the living planet, which is already well underway? Mm. I think there's a real difficulty in political narratives to bring in the very, very big picture, the much slower processes of climate breakdown, the lagged effects that are now locked in, and to lift people's gaze above the daily headlines and above the immediacy of their own lives to understand that we are part of a far bigger system. And I'm going to say, actually, I, think, I do think this goes back to the starting point of economics, which many people learn a little bit of. And even if they don't study it, we all learn it through the way it's spoken about in the media, in politicians, you know, in parliaments. So economic mainstream begins with, welcome to economics, here's supply and demand, here's the market. It starts with the market, it starts in market. And, and, and you can hear in the news today, you know, how will markets react? Mm. As if this is the, the God that we must follow. How will mm. markets, the markets haven't responded well to this. We don't start by recognizing that we are living beings and part of a living world on the only known living planet in the universe. Mm -hmm. And that this planet has a series of life supporting systems on which everything that we do utterly depends. If we don't start by recognizing the climate cycle, the hydrological cycle, the nutrient cycle, that's not in our fundamental education. Very, very hard to bring that in, in the midst of a political debate that's caught up in how will markets respond to this, to then mm. invoke, but how will the, the planet be destabilized by this policy? It's very hard to hold the much bigger space, the longer space. And I think there's a cognitive dissonance in, in our mind, each one of us. And when we're listening to these debates, it's so complex. You, you like, you know, you're thinking in terms of systems and complexity. It's so hard to hold it in our minds. It's almost easier just to push it away and focus on the much shorter term, immediate feedbacks that we see from government policymaking to the markets, um, to the currencies, to impacts on interest rates and to impacts on inflation and to diminish economics as if it were that, when actually what's ultimately happening is that we're destroying the life-supporting systems of our planetary home. So the onus is on those to bring that in. And that's why people are demonstrating outside Parliament and outside Downing Street, Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion. How do you hold voice for a thriving living planet in a policy space that finds it very, very hard to let you bring that in? It's an extremely difficult job to do that well and to feel uh, like you've got currency on the immediacy of the news. You've got two minutes to explain why why you've, got, why you've got a problem with growth, for example. How are you going yeah. to do that? How are you going to come in and actually disrupt this worldview? So that's mm -hmm. why with Down at Economics, we believe that starting to put it into practice in towns, in communities, in cities, 
takes it from being an idea on the pace that you're trying to justify an idea, an idea and you can actually turn and look at the way places and people are already starting to do this, always with constraints, because every town is based in a city, in a nation, and based in a region in the world. So it's constrained by the global systems of which it's a part, and yet transformation begins. And tell me about those cities, because I th when I was living in Holland, Amsterdam, I believe, was the first city uh, to publicly declare itself a donor economic city. And they went about remodeling um, their systems in order to fit your model. Now, I haven't exactly kept up with how it's going, but I believe they're still using it. Where else are we seeing uh, communities use this and what benefit are they, they reaping from it? So Amsterdam was indeed the first city to say, we're going to use the donut model and not, not cross the entire city, but to say right. in our ambition to become circular city. So to be 100% circular by 2050 in our use of materials, be 50% circular by 2030. These are big ambitions. This is transformative. And mm. what, what it's clear from all the different places that are now engaging with these ideas, these are places where there are people with ambition and vision to transform, that they know that they need to bring about the transformations of our times. And a concept like the donut gives a really useful overarching frame to saying we need to transform, we need to decarbonize our economy, we need to create a circular economy, we need to transform our food systems, we need a fair economy. You can't have five or six different agendas bring them together under a vision that says, let's meet the needs of all within the means of the planet. Let's do that in this city. The donut offers you a vision to which all of these agendas speak. So they, uh, what we're seeing is they already have that ambition and they bring in the donut as a concept to explain it, to guide it, to visualize it and to make it compelling. Hmm. So it's around decarbonization, circularity, um, and we're seeing more and more cities from Amsterdam and Brussels, um, now Glasgow, Barcelona, Nanaimo in Canada, Ipo in Malaysia, Saldana Bay in South Africa, El Monte Amazing. in Chile. There's around 40 local governments and city governments around the world who have themselves said, we think these ideas are useful where we are. And that's a really important principle, actually, for us at Donut Economics Action Lab that we set up to work with these very change makers. We've never once pushed or tried to persuade or convince anyone to use these ideas. There are so many ideas in the world. People mm. in a place facing the complexity of their own local reality, those people are best placed to decide, does this idea help bring about, help motivate and, and speed the very transformations that we believe we can create here? And if so, then they bring the, the ideas in. So it's, it's, it's an idea that's in the commons and it's being picked up and put into place in many, mm. in many, many cities around the world. So there are places that are um, decarbonizing their city center, removing cars and traffic from the city center. They might be aiming to be a circular economy, using it as an alternative to the pursuit of endless growth for the success of their place. So we're not, what motivates us here is not to say this, that the local economy is always growing. What motivates us to, is to say that are local people leading good lives and are we doing that within the means of the living planet? And can we monitor ourselves by these metrics that we define locally? So over time, we'll be able to see whether this is becoming a thriving place. And for me, it's very important to move from the, the language of growth, which was, is such a 20th century framing, to mm. the language of thriving, which is also alive, which is also healthy, but it's not endlessly increasing in size. Mm. So these towns and cities, we, they're just getting going. And, and I just want to reflect on, let's, let's go back to neoliberalism, right? It was in 1947. Mm -hmm. 
that Milton Friedman and Hayek and others got together in a little village in Switzerland called Mont Pelerin. And they said, let's create this new economic agenda. It's called neoliberalism. And they started seeding it right back then. Now it took three decades until the mm. 1980s when Reagan and Thatcher actually put it into practice in this, in, you know, on the world stage. And if after yeah. three years of neoliberalism, somebody said, well, how's it going? It apparently wasn't going anywhere. It was seeded for decades. Mm. Now, we do not want donor economics to be seeded for decades. We don't have time for that. But what, it, what I think is happening is it's taking root. The ideas are starting up. So places are trying to figure out what, it, what can we change? What can we stop doing here? What can we start doing here? Within the constraints of our national legislation, within the region, within the world, we're still part of global financialized economic systems. Mm -hmm. What can we start to change here? How do we change this local conversation? How do we explain to residents why we need to create a circular economy? So we're seeing it mostly be used in context of creating a circular economy, of investing in bringing back nature, on decarbonizing, and also community wealth building. So building local ownership, um, economic democracy, as people say, so locally yeah. owned enterprises. Some cities, for example, say we have an, a social entrepreneur hub. We want to get new innovations and new businesses started here. And we want to infuse their, their startup with the ideas of donor economics so that that enterprise really does help mm. sequester carbon. It helps build community. It helps solve problems in the world through enterprise. And it doesn't get captured and turned into a money-making machine. It actually can pursue its purpose. How fantastic. I think what's so wonderful about it um, is that once you kind of take the the filter, the paradigm of neoliberalism away, the amount of creativity that is opened up yeah. with the idea of circularity and community and justice and equity and collectivity and intergenerational rights and the planetary well-being, um, what humans can devote their life to each other and the future and the, the now, it's just invites for so much more creativity than, than profit maximization which is yes. the cornerstone of neoliberalism. And I think that's something that's so exciting about your model. I do have a question, though, that I've been burning to ask you yep. for about a year. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I had a mineral scientist on the, a material scientist on mm -hmm. the show about a year ago. And we were talking about circular economy. And he mm -hmm. went, listen, great, love the idea. But the models don't factor in um, the materials that we have. And... It is not possible to endlessly recycle everything. There will have to be some new mining, some new this, some new that. Uh, but essentially, we cannot have a circular economy and endless population growth uh, and a balanced planet because of the, the limits to materials that we have. He talks about materials blindness. Could you, now, I understand I haven't given you any figures there, but more of an anecdote, but could you speak to that? What's, you, you, you put in there endless population growth, but, but we're not going to have endless population growth, right? The, right. the global population is, is, is still growing, but it's growing towards a plateau. Right. Unlike okay. the global economy, which seems to intend to grow endlessly, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we have a growing population, but, and, and it's incredibly important to stabilize the mm -hmm. size of the human population to bring us mm -hmm. back into balance with the rest of the living world. Mm -hmm. But Yes, this material scientist, well, I, I would say, I, I think I'm going to agree with the material scientist that <laughs> there's not unlimited materials. I mean, I, mm -hmm. what it sounds like what you're saying is this person was saying, we're going to have to do new mining. Mm -hmm. There's another side to that story, which is, and there's only so much material out there. Yep. Right. So the yep, idea yep, yep. that, for example, everyone who say, oh, 
What we need to do is get rid of having fossil fuel cars and everyone buy an electric car. There is yes. not enough minerals and rare earth metals and materials mm -hmm. to do that. In mm -hmm. fact, there's not enough to create solar panels for the whole world. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to the idea that we always must have expansion. It's all right. We can have more and more as long as it's renewable. No, mm. we need to reduce demand. Yeah. And a lot of circularity is about not recycling all the time. It's about preventing the need for recycling in the first place by mm -hmm. refurbishing, repairing, resharing, and reducing. So mm -hmm. it goes much deeper to redesigning the ways that we live and uh, much more collective ownership. For example, not owning a car at all that would then be recycled, but having a car share. So one car shared amongst 10, 15 households massively mm -hmm. reduces our footprint. And, and that car needs to be made modular by design so that it can be assembled and yeah, disassembled. Yeah, so you're only yeah, replacing the one yeah. piece that needs replacing. So there's a lot of design interventions you can make to massively reduce. But of course, there's no such thing as a circular, I would say circular or cyclical, right? Mm. There are cycles because we live on a planet subject to the second law of thermodynamics, which is that mm. things decay, metals, rust, paper, rots, potatoes, rots people die, things decay on this planet. And so you're having to invest energy to either find new materials or renew them or regenerate them. We need to do that within the cycles of the living world. But, mm -hmm. but even if, if, if your new material scientist says, well, a circular economy is impossible, I can, I can say, well, and a linear economy therefore is really impossible. The idea Absolutely. of just having this through flow. I mean, I really believe that our children's children will pull photographs from the archives and they'll see pictures of oceans, the surface covered in single-use plastics. They'll see photographs of people in Ghana and other countries like uh, where there are electronics waste dumps. They'll see people, photographs of people crawling through this dumped mm. valuable materials. And they'll, they'll literally say to us, did you know about this? Mm. Did you ever see this? I mean, mm. you can't ever have seen, you, you can't ever have known and thought, but we, we yeah. think it's normal. We see it all the time. Yeah. We're so used to living in an utterly waste-based, degraded world. It's, yeah. we, we have to remove the scales from our eyes and realize that, of course, the economy must be far more circular and cyclical than it currently is, as well mm -hmm. as reducing our demand. And, and there's only so much metals and minerals out there that can be mined. So mm -hmm. the bigger danger, I think, is that we will, we will literally run out of that stuff that's why we must stop dispersing it, throwing it away and reduce our demand. And I think mm -hmm. the idea of reducing demand is it's at odds with the Western mindset and the Western lifestyle that's been inherited. But I think it's very interesting in the context of the, the Russia-Ukraine war at the moment, it's only now that you hear political leaders start to talk about reducing demand or rationing demand. And, and I think it's something to do with a throwback to the Second World War. That's when people in Western societies, in Europe and the US, that's what they associate rationing with, war. And it's mm. almost as if the context of war now creates uh, mm -hmm. the basis for talking again about the fact that there are reasons why we need to reduce our demand. But it's not mm. only due to the current context of war, it's going forward. We need to live in far more re demand-reducing ways. We need to bring our footprint back within planet Earth. And that is a reinvention of our lifestyles and what we think is normal, but moving away from thinking I can pay for it and therefore I can use it. We must reduce our demand. Mm. So are we, are we, are we talking about degrowth here? 
I don't use that phrase because every conversation I've ever been in about degrowth, people are talking about different things, so I don't find it helpful. Okay, but here's okay. how I'll put it. The yeah, donut please. shows that we are massively overshooting planetary boundaries. Mm -hmm. We need to combat within the means of the living planet. We need to reduce our pressure on, we need to massively reduce our use of fossil fuels, our material footprint, so our pressure on land, on fertilizers, on water, on timber, on materials and metals. Massive reduction. I mean, that's what the donut shows. I don't need to talk mm. about degrowth. The donut shows we are way overshooting planetary boundaries. And the first goal of the donut is to come back within planetary boundaries. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you do that? We need to become regenerative by design and we need to be distributed by design. I believe that calls into question the presumption of endless economic growth for sure. And we need to totally transform our economic systems to make that possible. Right. And so could you paint a picture of um, a world in 50 years time, say, donut economics took off we we are living in a regenerative and distributive economy all around the world what does that look like because i think some of the some sometimes people are afraid of the idea of having anything vaguely slightly reduced because it would be some kind of change and it seems to entail some sort of loss um and therefore the either to ignore sort of the the, the horrors of the situation that we're currently in uh, or to believe that we'll just electrify everything and live life that way. Those seem to be sort of two of the prevailing um, preferred options. But could you paint us a, a picture for what life could look like and how it could be better using donut economics? Well, there would definitely be reduced pollution, reduced waste, reduced screaming inequalities. Uh, there are many things, surely, in the world that we want to see reduced. And, and yet, of course, we must speak what we're for. So mm. it's a world, it would be a world if we have the wisdom and the chance and the ambition to create it that is much more interconnected with the rest of the living world, where it would be much more visible in the towns and the cities where we live that nature is what supports us and enables us. We would bring nature back into our lives because that's where our resilience and health comes from. It's a mm. world in which we'll be much more playful, actually, with materials because we will have a much longer relationship with them. We will be mm. refurbishing and repairing and reusing and reinventing and remaking. And I think a lot of creativity will come out of that. I think it's going to be a world which will be informed by what's often called cosmolocal production. And the Ooh, idea is that? that atoms are heavy and they should circulate much more locally. And oh. we should use locally sourced materials, but bits, data, mm. bits of light and can travel globally. So we can share ideas and designs in the global commons, but we should make the materials and reuse and refurbish mm. and repair those materials much more locally. And to me, the concept of cosmo-local production is a huge hope for the future because it means that we could actually, through micro factories that have all the laser tools, the, the internet connectivity, the distributed solar energy that connects them to the world, we can create local fabrication centers. That means you could actually bring fabrication, micro-manufacturing, locally owned enterprise into communities, rural and urban around the world, rather than what we currently see is the pressure of people toward urban centers um, and people removed from mm. the land that they've always known, the community they've known, pushed into urban centers and often into um, real deprivation and, and vulnerability there. So it's, mm. a, it's, a, it's a world of cosmolocal production. It's also a world in which we judge the success of nations by whether or not that country is getting into the donut. Is it meeting the needs of its people within the means of the living planet? By the way, today, the country that's the forerunner in this is Costa Rica. 
it's almost it's much closer than most countries to meeting the needs of all its people, and it's right. closer than any others to living within the means of the living planet while it does it. So we will never be talking about developed nations, right? Yeah. I mean, let's banish that language. Yeah. Yeah. All all so-called developed nations are massively overshooting planetary boundaries, and they're destroying the life support systems of the world. There's nothing developed about that. So we'll have a really different sense of what success looks like. I think it'll be a world in which we have a much, much stronger relationship to energy. We'll stop obsessing about GDP and uh, we'll, I hope, we'll massively definancialize the power of markets to determine and the flows and the, the ups and downs to give the thumbs up and thumbs down to nations. We will focus much more on energy because that is ultimately the currency of life, whether it's solar energy, whether it's damaging uh, impacts of fossil fuel energy that we've been using, whether it's energy that we turn into food for our own bodies or harness through machines, whether it's turned into electricity, whether we harness water for energy, we'll realize that that is ultimately the currency. That is ultimately the budget with which we're working. And then we'll look up at the sun and say, thank you for this phenomenal solar income that hits this planet every day. And we'll get so much more creative about harnessing this gift of solar energy that comes to us every day. Wow. What it a beautiful thing. It's also, it's also <laughs> going to be a world, it's a complex world, right? And I, if you read the work of Kim Stanley Robinson, yes, um, right? Uh, yes. Ministry for the Future, it, it ain't, it's not a pretty smooth story, right? Getting it. So I'm, I'm envisioning a world that could work, but I, I think he's right in his book that this is a bumpy ride. We're in what he calls the turbulent 20s. And that's yeah. why these crises are, are happening. And anyone who thinks we're going to go back to a world pre COVID, I, I don't believe we are. I believe we are mm -hmm. in, a, in an era of crises. And the question is, do we, do we respond only very, very short term to each one of these crises and try and fend them off and fend them off with outdated political language, promising, promising growth because it's so easily pleasing, even mm. though it's no way offers a solution to the complexity of what we face? Or mm. do we start to say, you know, recognizing the complexity of the context we face, mm. it's actually time to move to a much bigger longer term vision. Of transformation mm. and that's the obviously that's the space that donut economics works in alongside many others alongside the well-being economy coalition and Com economy for the common good alongside when alongside maori worldviews alongside ubuntu mm. Sangam in india mm. there are so many worldviews that have always spoken to thriving um, mm. and i think it's actually the dominance of the western economic mindset and western um economic power structures that have pushed us around this pursuit of growth for so long. It's time to bring through a vision of thriving mm. so that we give ourselves even just half a chance of getting there. I think what is so important and in what you've said is, A, there are so many projects and schools of thoughts and communities doing something around the world. Yes. It is not hopeless. And B, it might be that the developed nations come last in a way uh, because it is this sort of globalized uh, hegemony that we've exported around the world. Um, and it, we have seen time and time again over history that is other parts of the world that have uh, community and collectivism um, uh, in constant or um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, community and collectivism are the foundations of the very principles of with which we, they live their lives uh, and have been deliberately undermined by political forces from the West time and time and time again. So it is for people who feel despondent, I mean, look to 
all other corners of the globe and you will see fantastic things happening around climate, around community, around women's rights and all of these kinds of things. And we are currently playing catch up, unfortunately, because of the power of the West, how quickly we play catch up or how long we refuse um, to no longer be world leaders in whatever. And um, that's going to have a huge impact on the world. But these things are happening. And I just think it's such an important message to say to people. I get so many people saying to me so often, but what do I do? What can I do? I don't know where to begin. What would be your advice to somebody that says, I don't know where to begin, but I want to? So there are many places to begin. Um, Donut Economic Talk is one of them, but it's not the only one. It's really important to me. I and mean, our work, we want to join the movement. We don't want to be the movement, right? We're joining mm. them. There are many ways you can get involved and different people are motivated by different entry points. But if somebody is interested in the, the, the concept of Donut Economics, what would, could, I, could I get involved where I am? So we have Donut Economics Action Lab, and it's a platform that we invite anybody to join, donuteconomics.org. You can just go to our website. You'll see a map. You'll see where all the members are. Is there anybody where you are? Is mm. there already a group organizing where you are? People around the world are taking these ideas and combining them with, say, transition towns, with, with uh, economy for the common good. What can we do to make this happen here? How can we start organizing here? So you can, if you're a teacher in a classroom, how can you bring these ideas to your students? If you're a community organizer, how could you meet up with others and say, what would it mean? And I think one of the first places to start is to make visible what's already happening. As you just said, mm. you look around the world, there are amazing things already happening. It's so easy to be hit by the headlines of despair and feel overwhelmed by crisis. It's so important to turn the other way and look at what is already happening. What momentum is there already that's taking us towards the future that we want. I mean, when I wrote Donut Economics, the number of people who came up to me and said, this, this book gives a framing to what I'm already doing. It mm. gives a framing to the enterprise I've already created, the community group I've already mobilized. It's already there. It just needs the, the language, the images to help bring it together and make it visible. Because we can see another world is already trying to be born. She's already mm. emerging. And that, for me, is one of the strongest reasons not to give up and not to fall into a hopelessness, because there it is. It's rising if we can only make it visible to ourselves. So get involved. Uh, all the work on eco-anxiety shows that people who actually just get involved and start joining in action with others feel so much better about the possibilities and their engagement and, and their, um, their agency than if we don't get involved with others. Mm, beautiful thank you and my final question for you is who would you like to platform well given the questions you've been asking me <laughs> given your uh, quite right focus on the importance of community engagement taking economics out of the ivory tower and bringing it into everyday lives that people can feel engaged with i would love to platform the incredible work of an organization called civic square in birmingham they have, in, in one neighborhood in Birmingham, in the UK, in a, in, a, in a neighborhood called Ladywood, they are taking the ideas of donut economics and really putting them into practice at the neighborhood scale, going street to street uh, with pictures, with play involving kids, involving community conversation, diving in what does this mean for us and for our transformation in this place. It's work that blows me away every day. So one of the co-founders and directors of, of Civic Square is called Imi Kaur. She oh, is a fan yes. 
You know me. I, yes, um, she is. She is coming on the show. It was Ella Saltmarsh also platformed well, her. Actually, go. how lovely. You can how let lovely. Amy, Amy know that she's been doubly platformed. <laughs> I will. There we go. Because I think I think what they're doing. You know, I'm talking about ideas that began on the page of a book, mm. and Amy and the crew at Civic Square have and are bringing it to life in a place, and that's not easy work. Amazing. And Amazing. for all the brilliance and play and the beauty of what you see, what you don't see is the incredible relentless work that goes on behind the scenes to, to build community organizing, but what, mm. their generosity also, I want, I want to run ahead of and say that the generosity of the way they work is they practice it in, in like imagine something there through experimentation and then very, very actively share out with others because they don't want to be the place where it's happening. They want to share and inspire and make the tools and ideas accessible to others. So mm. they're currently writing up everything they're doing. They're going to share it on our platform for anybody who's listening today to go on and you can read about what they're doing in Civic Square and say, hmm, I could even start making this happen where I am. Oh, fab. Amazing. Wonderful. And that is exactly what we need. We need blueprints. We need to be sharing data. I love what you said about data, bits being light and ideas traveling far. I love this idea of um, borders in the sense of um, local borders, keeping things where they need to be for the people that need them and that also the ideas can cross borders. They're yeah. Yes, there is no uh, proprietor of ideas. I just, yeah, how wonderful. Kate, thank you so much for your time. This is absolutely fascinating. I'm so grateful for you uh, for coming on the show. Thank you. Um, real pleasure to, to talk with you about these really inscrutable and critical challenges of our time. We don't, we mm. don't have answers, but we keep coming at it with questions, with experiments, and this is how we find a way through. Exactly. By continuing these conversations. Thank yes. you. Thank you. If you want to learn more about donut economics, I've put links over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. As always, thank you to the Planet Critical community who make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. I'll see you next week.